So the employers and the unions went to Congress back when Congress actually worked and you could get them to understand things like that <laughs> and said, we need something different because of the nature of our industry. Well, Chuck, welcome back. We got us uh, another podcast here to record. I can't say thank you enough for deciding to join me uh, to talk about another topic near and dear to our hearts, uh, letters of ascent, uh, right here before uh, the holidays. Um, and true to form, you are always festive and you've brought with us. Is that Father Christmas back there? Who is that? Yes, it is. Okay, look at that. So, I feel like uh, he's always sitting on my shoulders. Oh, that's uh, got implications that I don't know that I want to travel down in this one. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, diving right in, uh, letters of ascent, there's a lot of information out there about them, uh, a lot of potentially misconceptions. So why don't we just, let's start with why do we have them? Why, Why are there letters of ascent? Okay. And the reason is pretty simple. We're engaged in what's known as multi employer bargaining, where the chapter, who its appointed negotiating committee, bargains with the local union on behalf of everyone who has signed a letter of assent. Instead of each individual employer having to deal individually with that local union, the chapter organizes a multi-employer bargaining unit of employers to actually do what the union does, to create strength through numbers. The union controls all the workers, Individual employers could be at a disadvantage because any one employer doesn't represent that much of the industry in in most cases and in the broadest terms. The union could pressure that individual employer. Maybe he's having financial problems. Maybe he's got a big job he's got to finish. They can put undue pressure on an individual. But if he's part of the larger group and they all bargain the same way at the same time, the union can't be aggressive against any one of them because the union is dealing with with the group. For the employers, too, it means that when they're done bargaining, everybody has the same rules to bargain, to run their business under. So when you're bidding for work, that part of the factor is out of it. And it's more your entrepreneurial skill in running your company that you compete with, not the fact that contractor X gets a better deal from the union. So in this uh, multi-employer system that we have here, do you have to have a letter of assent to create that or can you do it without it? Uh, Yeah, you have to have some written document that ties uh, the contractors into the bargaining unit. Couldn't they all just sign the contract? Well, they could, but again, that can be problematic. I mean, I, I came from, or was chapter manager in Wichita. It was a small area. We had relatively few contractors. Before that, I was in Atlanta. There were many more contractors. Arguably, it was doable there. But when you get into large cities where you have hundreds or even thousands of contractors, it becomes nearly impossible on a timely basis to have people sign the actual contract. And there's no need for that. They sign an enduring letter of assent. There are ways to get out of it, and we'll talk about those. But you sign it once. You're signatory to the agreement. You authorize other people to do your bargaining for you. So you're not involved in that rather intensive uh, season. You're just part of a large group that's going to 
bargain with the union on a more or less equal footing. And by having this letter of assent on file, you don't have to go out and secure new signatures every time there's a new agreement or some interim change in the agreement. So then maybe the best way to say it would be while letters of assent would not are not the absolute requirement to create a multi-employer uh, bargaining unit, they are the most uh, efficient way. Yeah. Or, or the other way to say it is there's no requirement under the law to have a multi-employer bargaining unit. Everybody could have their own agreement, but that would not work very well in the real world. Um, and so this, having the multi-employer system work, works best for, for us. Now, one other thing uh, I guess we'll talk about here is how construction is different from every other industry. And in construction, employers have the right to sign a letter of assent even before they have any employees. In every other industry, you start your business, you hire people. At some point, they decide that they want to be represented by a union. They go find a union or a union finds them. The union develops a majority, and then they approach the employer and say, we would like to represent your employees. Employers in those industries are forbidden to go out and find a union and sign an agreement without the employees seeking it out to begin with. In construction, it's the other way around. The employer gets to choose. If, if I'm an electrical contractor, I'm going to choose to sign an agreement with the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers because that's the union for electricians. I can do that because, because the law allows it, but I, I should be allowed to do that because, say, I'm a traveling contractor. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I want to do work in Baltimore, Maryland. And for a variety of reasons, I want to be a union contractor in Baltimore. If you did not have the construction proviso, as it's called, you wouldn't be able to do that as a contractor. You'd have to go up to Baltimore, establish a business, hire a workforce, and then hope that either the union or your employees would want to become union. So the letter of assent allows you to do that. Go into another town, you sign a letter of assent, the agreement is all there set out for you, ready to go, and there's a workforce ready for you to hire. Yeah, basically what you just outlined there was the... Um... I guess, act of Congress, because it was, that created the ADF relationship, because before it was just, it was 9A, it was Section 9A of the uh, NLRA, and then the construction employers went to Congress, just like you said, and said, you know, this doesn't make sense for the way our world operates. We need to put the cart before the horse, Mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, so to speak, and we need to be able to get... uh, you know, to select the union and, and utilize because, yeah, just think about that, how little sense that would make if, let's say, they were a 9A uh, construction employer in one city and then needed to travel, you know, 20 miles down the road into another wage area or another bargaining unit, they couldn't utilize that. It's, you know, they're kind of all under the same umbrella of unions, but then they couldn't even use that union across the the border because they don't have a bargaining unit there. They would have to, or maybe portal in, but that was another part of your podcast. Uh, but yeah, they wouldn't, would be able to do that unless we had well, that. But if they weren't signatory in the area where they had to work, it would be hard for them to bring union member employees from their home area 
to that other area and have them work non-union. True. They'd have to make some arrangements with the union about sending send these people to me so that then we can form a, a union relationship or a signatory relationship. That would be illegal under 9A. So the employers and the unions went to Congress back when Congress actually worked and you could get them to understand things like that <laughs> and said, we need something different because of the nature of our industry. Yeah, I guess uh, kind of circling back, the reason that I was trying to make the clarification on whether letters of assent were absolutely required um, is because I, you know, I think about this stuff a lot and my understanding of the law was, you, I mean, there is not, there's nothing illegal, like you said, for a contractor to sign an agreement with a union. It's just with this letter of assent system that we've set up, it, it's just so much more convenient. Um, it makes mm-hmm. not only our lives easier as association uh, professionals, but it makes the union's life easier. They're not oh, dealing yeah. with, you know, each individual employer. They have one, you know, one body to go to, so to speak. Um, so that leads me to kind of my next question. And you alluded to it briefly, but I, I wanted to dig into it a little bit. Uh, where did they come from? How did we get this ABC system that we have? Okay. Um, again, they started after the exemption was passed by Congress. Then uh, the industries, electrical industries, sheet metal, plumbing, whoever, the contractors and unions started to try to figure out how, what documentation are we going to use to make this happen now? And in our industry, the letter of assent was born. And so they came out with probably one letter of assent. And then over time, they added a second one. So we'll say letter A has been around since the dawn of letters of assent. And that's the, that's the basic letter of assent. Letter A, it binds the employer to the current and successor agreements. It appoints the chapter as the bargaining representative for everything related to labor relations and the agreement. It provides that it can be canceled by the employer on 120 days notice. And that's basically it. If he ever wants to end the relationship, he has to take affirmative steps. He has to notify the chapter and the local union that he wants to terminate his letter of assent. And this is where you've got to step aside and say, point out one other thing, just by terminating the letter of assent does not mean the employer has terminated his obligation to the union. So it's a two-step process. First, the employer has to tell the chapter and the local union, I no longer want to be represented by the chapter or in the chapter's bargaining unit. And then it has to tell the union that I want to bargain over either having my own agreement or terminating my agreement. You're bound to the bargaining unit as well as being bound to the agreement. You sever your relationship with the bargaining unit, but that doesn't sever your relationship to the agreement. In 1987, the National Labor Relations Board issued a decision known as the Declawa decision, and we're not going to go into that in great detail, but it did make one significant change. Well, it made several, but one was it did away with this theory of automatic conversion. And there are 
you mentioned there's 8F agreements and 9A agreements, and the traditional one is 9A. And when an employer is organized under that, he has a continuing bargaining obligation with the union. When they sign a letter of assent, they're organized under Section 8F, and that continuing obligation doesn't apply. Before DECLAWA, the rule was if you signed a letter of assent and you operated as a union employer for some unspecified period of time, but through a couple of cycles of the agreement, then you were automatically converted to 9A. That rule, since DECLAWA, doesn't apply. If you sign as an 8F employer, you're an 8F employer unless the union converts you. And there are a number of things the union has to do to convert you. Employers sometimes get letters from the local saying, hey, we need you to sign this document called the voluntary recognition. That's where that comes from. Every now and then, they're trying to make sure they've converted everybody from 8F to 9A. Reason for that is that continuing obligation to bargain. It really doesn't have much effect in our industry, especially if you have any kind of arbitration language in your agreement, such as the standard CIR. But that's why you may see that uh, letter. But that goes beyond the scope of our little podcast today. So I was talking about the A letter and got to my normal digression into other things. Well, that's but par that, for the course for us. Yeah, um, anyway, right. I did want to interject, uh, though, because you pointed out something very interesting there is where it's, I mean, this is unique to us and maybe not entirely unique, but I, I know our industry better than other industries. Um, while an employer may be an 8F employer, but it's like you said, if they terminate that letter of assent, they still have a contractual obligation. Uh, to yes. bargain. So while they may not have it under the NLRA, they still have it contractually, like because, you know, they might have standard CIR and they have that language in the contract that requires them to continue under the agreement. As, as we've discussed in previous uh, podcasts, there's the contract requirements and the legal requirements, and both apply and you have to be cognizant of those. So just because you've sent the letter to the union or to the, and to the chapter saying, I want out, doesn't mean you're out. There are steps you have to take, the employer has to take, and there are steps the union has to take to keep you. But again, that's more than we want to talk about right now. So I've, I've touched on letter A, so it's okay, I'll move into letter B. Before you do, since we've already gone down this rabbit hole, we may, we may as well stay down here. Um, I do want to touch on something interesting that I, I don't think a lot of people were aware of, and I've, I've had to make this distinction a couple of times now over the past several months. Um, let's set up that scenario where we have an employer that has a letter of assent A, and they send their uh, intent to terminate the letter A, and they even say, we're going to terminate the agreement and you know we're not going to get into that process, but they <laughs> have terminated their letter of assent A and therefore have revoked their bargaining rights or removed them from the chapters. The chapter no longer is their bargaining agent. What I have had to clarify with people, though, because we have a scenario going on like this right now, the chapter is still the representative for grievances. Mm -hmm. Absent that, because we had a situation where an employer is terminating their letter of assent A, but they had a pending grievance, and they've told the chapter that we don't want 
you, the chapter, to represent us in this grievance hearing. And, and my advice to the chapter was, you know, if they don't want you to represent them, that's fine. What you need to do is communicate to them and say, while we still have the right to represent you, we are going to allow you to represent yourself. That way you are acknowledging and having them acknowledge that you have that right, but you're granting them the ability to mm -hmm. represent themselves. So for anybody listening or if anybody, you know, follows us down this rabbit hole, that is a very important distinction is if you have an employer that terminates their letter A, that does not terminate uh, your representation of them in a grievance procedure. So if that employer in that process has a grievance filed against them, you as the chapter are still required to represent them uh, at the LMC. Right. You're required to set one up. You're required to appoint people to sit on it. And it is your agreement. You, the question might be asked, well, if the guy's pulling out, why would I even want to represent him? The answer is it's your agreement and you don't want him making a settlement with the union that's going to affect other members of the bargaining unit. So how about we claw our way back out of this uh, rabbit hole here and, and let's go into it. You've talked about letter A. How do we get letter B? Okay, letter B came about as a way to accommodate traveling employers, essentially, contractor from out of, beyond the jurisdiction of the local union had a large job or just wanted to enter the market and see what was there. But generally, um, they came in for a specific purpose. They were only going to be there for a set period of time. And so the union would get with them and say, okay, well, if you agree to be bound by the agreement, sign this letter B, and it self-terminates. And there were normally two provisions. One was it was granted only for a particular project, or it was granted for a specific period of time. So that worked pretty well for a while. And I don't know, I can speculate as to why the union became dissatisfied with that arrangement. And so they changed the letter of assent B. And instead of it automatically expiring at the end of a project or at the end of a certain period of time, it became like the letter of assent A. It automatically renewed at the end of the period. So rather than walking away from it and being done, an employer was still bound. So there now the only differences between an A and a B letter are the B letter does not specifically appoint the chapter as the bargaining representative of the individual employer. And that's because when B letters were first drafted, that wasn't the intent. This was to get a guy in, give him a workforce, and then get him out of town. He wasn't going to stick around. He didn't want to be a part of the chapter on the long-term basis. So that part wasn't necessary. The other part of that was because he had no relationship with the chapter as his bargaining representative, his notification window was shorter. Now, the union has been the one to write letters of assent, but over time, whenever the IBEW has changed it, they've shown them to National NECA and said, this is the form it's going to take. And from time to time, NECA has made suggestions, uh, found certain language that have it did not like, and the union has tried and in most cases accommodated those uh, concerns. <clears throat> One of those was in the original form of the B letter in that the notice period was 
actually, I think the first ones they put out, it was only 60 days. And Nika said, it takes a 90 day notice to open the agreement. So how can you have a 60 day notice to terminate somebody's letter of assent? You got to know beforehand. And they proposed 90 days and then 100 days. So right now the letter of assent B have to notify the chapter and the local at least 100 days prior to the, the anniversary date. But it's gotten to the point now where the B letter is essentially the same as the A letter. And we have had off and on, not real discussions, but just raise the issue with the IBEW. Why even have a B letter? If it's so close to the A letter, what's the point of a B? They just feel that sometimes there's animosity between a individual contractor and a chapter for whatever reason. The contractor might not sign at all if he has to appoint the chapter as his bargaining agent. And so they don't want to, to cut that option out. They'd rather see him be a union contractor. So hasn't been a big issue, but it no longer serves the purpose it was intended to, which was an in and out one-time deal for a particular project or a certain period of time. Get back to our previous discussion, the law doesn't talk about letters of assent and there's no real mandatory format. So they don't have to look like ours. And indeed in other uh, trades, they don't, they, they have much different language. So local unions were writing up all kinds of documents and signing people to them, trying to clear their books and some of these employers started taking advantage and they would come into an area. They'd be non-union. They might even be non-union in that town. And they'd go to the local union and say, I need a lot of men. I got this one job. Um, the union would sign them to a letter of assent, but it would only cover that one job. And so they were providing manpower to a non-union employer to complete that one job. But he didn't leave town when it was over or he was coming in and out work in an area, sign one of these other letters of assent, leave, come back a year or two later, do the same thing, promise the union, yeah, yeah, I'll be union, but let me get over this job first. He'd finish the job and leave. So the international said, we've got to stop this. So they created the letter of assent C. What it's supposed to do is provide an opportunity for a non-union contractor to take a look at being a union contractor in that particular local union's area. When they sign the letter of assent C, they agree to be bound by the contract for a minimum of six months. Then after six months, before 12 months, they have the option to walk away. They can notify the union that they no longer want to be bound. And as long as they are current in all fringe benefit contributions and ed- every other obligation of the agreement, then they can just become non-union. But if they don't do that within that window, then the relationship becomes an ordinary relationship. It's self-renewing. They're bound to the contract and all the successors unless they use the more formal process of notification and withdrawal. So the idea of this agreement was it would be available, but only once to an employer so that they would have an opportunity to try out the union in a certain jurisdiction. And if it worked for them, great, they become a long-term union employer. 
if after six months it's not working for them, they get a chance to leave. So those are basically the three letters. So for, I guess, tips for traveling contractors, we've already talked about when they travel with their employees on our portability podcast, but this is more from an administrative or business operation standpoint. Um, if you're traveling into an area, uh, the local comes to you with a letter A, you sign the letter A. Um, yeah. There's, you know, there's not a recommendation to sign a letter B or a letter C. You know, if you're a NECA member, keep the bargaining unit strong, keep the chapter as your representative. And then there's the question of, do I cancel it when I leave? And I mean, the answer is it's, it's really up to you. If you're going to be in and out, then, you know, leave the letter. If it, 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 but it's a personal preference at that point. If you just don't like open letters of assent all around the country, then yeah, go ahead and terminate it. Nothing saying you can't sign another one when you come back in. I guess my recommendation would be if it's an area that you're frequently in and out of, why do you want to keep signing letters? Just just mm-hmm. leave the letter of assent. But there is no harm one way or the other. You either leave it open or you, you terminate it. It doesn't matter whether it's an A or B. Right. The process to terminate is the same. I think we've gone through just about most or most of everything that we can with letters of assent. Is there anything that you can think of that we might have missed? No. No, I think we've covered it other than talking about someone having a specific question and we don't know what those are. Well, I mean, people have a specific question. You know, the advice always is your chapter manager, get with your field rep. Field rep can answer the question for you. Field reps, if you need any assistance, you know where to find me. Just reach out. I'd be happy to help out and work with you and uh, answer that question. Employers that are listening to this, um, you've heard our tips. You've heard our advice. Hopefully, you know more than you ever wanted to know about the letters of (laughs) assent you have with local unions around the country. Uh, But yeah, I mean, my my goal in this was for somebody to be able to understand what they are, where they came from, and maybe to dispel a couple of myths about them. And and I think, Chuck, you hit the biggest one. Um, You have that myth that employers think that, oh, if I go into an area, I just got to cancel that letter of assent as soon as I leave, or I need to go cancel all these open ones that I have around the country. And you you really don't. It's, It's not harmful one way or the other. I think we can call this one good. Uh, we've gone through everything that we can about letters of assent. Uh, Chuck, I just want to thank you again for making your knowledge available to us. And thank you to your special guest there. Hopefully I'm on the correct list this year. <laughs> but thank you again. Um, we'll obviously get another one of these recorded soon. If you have any suggestions for topics, uh, always send me the information. I'd be happy to cover it for you. But Everyone out there, stay safe and stay healthy, and we'll see you next time.